and welcome to Chinwag Reloaded with your presenter, Mr. Michael Gordon Laverick. I'm taking uh, Mr. Troyer's uh, line here by using my full and complete name, as which appears on my passport, and so on and so forth. With me today is a face and a name which uh, you should know, and if you don't, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Come on, get a grip! Her name is Amy Lewis. I've known her for some time. I think the first time we met was actually I was at a V-mug and I just turned up in, in Raleigh Durham and somebody from NetApp said, there's a V-mug on, do you want to go along? So I went along and then we all met up in the bar and I got introduced to Amy and then I got introduced to a man who then cut his lip open on a, on a, on a, a cup yes. who then joined Twitter with the name something like VM Cutlip. That's it. And like, it's, it's in joke ever since. But anyway, for those people who are not suitably enlightened and informed, Amy, can you tell us who you are, what you do, how you came part of the community, where you're from, all those, you know, sort of background history stuff? Well, the, the funny part is, so I'm Amy Lewis, and I currently am the Director of Influence Marketing at Solid Fire. Ooh, Influence Marketing. <laughs> When you when you have a crazy title, chances are good you've made it up yourself. And in this case, that is 100% accurate. My job is uh, purpose-built for me at, at Solid Fire. It's funny you uh, say that because I was talking to Carmel, my wife, about making up a job title because I've got friends that when they find out what my job title is, they wet themselves. They think it's so funny. Like I was senior <laughs> cloud infrastructure evangelist and they're both teachers or were teachers and they just go... <laughs> <laughs> so I was saying, uh, next job I have, I must get a really silly job title just for the pleasure of making Sam and Dave wet themselves laughing. So like, chief, kind, uh, chief emotional satisfaction evaluator or something like that. <laughs> just so they go, no, Americans don't have job titles. Like, oh, yes, I know. My yeah. job is to go around and make sure that everybody's feeling emotionally satisfied. But anyway. <laughs> so, um... You were at Cisco beforehand, and you moved to Solid Fire, but so, Solid Flower, Solid Solid Fire. Fire. Yeah. But how did you get into the industry of tech generally? Um, well, funny the story you mentioned. I remember well that uh, that first VMUG was my first foray into the community. So really? that wow. very that very night of the uh, meeting you, Vaughn Stewart, I know was there, Josh Atwell. Um, and uh, the infamous VM Cutlip incident. That was my first. That was my first time out in the community. Believe it or not. You know, in years go by, if somebody took a photograph, it'll be like that one, like that one of Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Ling, all stood around the same. It'd be like the uh, what's the phrase? The uh, the Fantastic Four or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of Four. It'd be like those famous people all together just jamming away. <laughs> So, um, and then you said we meet that way, but how did you get into the tech side of things? Were you, have you always been in tech or were you in, were you in um, I don't know, bathrooms and tiles at one stage? Or? Yes. No, I, I, was in, uh, I was in book publishing, of All course. Right. So I was uh, an English poli-sci major coming out of university. And uh, I, I knew how to, to talk and to write and to edit. And, uh, Some of us have been doing that from the age of four or five, you know. <laughs> it, took a, it took intense study for me to get there. Right. Um, and, and so I went into a traditional book publishing, but when I was, I was an editor of mm. the traditional sort at a publishing house, and they had no website. It was a time where not everybody in the company had email. 
Um, it was, you know, run by a man whose name was on the spine of the book. So old fashioned, independently owned book publishing. So was this was like 1993 or something? So, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I was going to say, actually, it would have been funny if I said, so this was like 2005 or something like that. It would have been <laughs> yes. funny. So not, yes. not a big, big name publisher that I would have known, like McGraw-Hill or Pearson, but a kind of more... Well, Workman oh, Publishing. You may you may know them. Workman Publishing. They own uh, Algonquin Books. Their most famous uh, book is Water for Elephants. So there are there are um, I don't know what to expect series and all these Water for books. Elephants. Like Water for Elephants. Yeah, it was a movie. It was oh a- yeah, I have seen that. Like Water for Elephants. But for a moment, it sounded like there would be people. Waiters walking around with tables and trays with water, serving elephants with cross legs inside the Ritz like water for elephants. Well, I've, I've been thinking about it because Ringling Brothers here in the States has just announced they're not going to use elephants in their circus after 2018. So it's a case of literature informing social norms. You know what? I think I read that book like water for elephants. Mm-hmm. Who's the author? That I can't remember off the top of my head, of course. Oh, you know, it's going to bug me now until we end the call. <laughs> then I Google it and go, oh, yeah, I read that. <laughs> I did English and American Lit at uni, but then obviously ended up doing something entirely different. I do think it's interesting when arty-farty types who know nothing about anything except, you know, how to detect iambic pentameter in a piece of uh, Shakespearean plays end up being, like, technical. But maybe there's something that... Well, yeah, that's the thing. We're all social, fluffy media animals who really don't know anything about technology at all. But boy, we can talk and we can write and you know present. I was, our I was geeky. I was geeky. My joke is: so when I was when I was a kid, I I had a Commodore sixty four. That was my kickoff in tech when I was in before middle school. And uh, my parents thought it was going to rot my brain if I played video games all day. Did you have braces so, as well? What's that? Oh, of course. It's like really ugly ones where you can Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> All of it. No, no disrespect to anybody who has to have braces. To put, you know. <laughs> well, and when you're, when you're a, you know, see-through redhead in the South and everybody is, you know, four feet tall and blonde and a cheerleader, you gotta, you gotta find a different way forward. You found your niche <laughs> in life. That's, that's what <laughs> Exactly. So, so I, I learned going. basic. Because my parents wouldn't give me any video games. And if you've got an electronic toy at, at that age... You're going to do something with it. So I, I taught myself to program because I I wasn't permitted to spend time on it unless I was enhancing my mind somehow. Some might say that learning basic probably did you more psychological damage than going around <laughs> with a virtual gun killing everything in sight, actually, because learning basic is a small form of psychological torture in my book. I, think. I, learned, oh, well, I learned the programming language on a ZX Spectrum, which was basically a games console that could double up as a ping pong ball bat if you put a piece of wood on it it was about the right size to play a ping pong ball on it and i tried to write a game on it but it was such a chronic language i don't know how anybody how, how on earth sonic not sonic the hedger however uh manic minor ever got written on this thing is is like anybody's <laughs> guess but anyway we're digressing or progressing into the, the first topic which is you gave me a bit of news just at the while we were chatting offline the real show is the bit that's Sorry. not recorded, folks. Um, about Gigadom, Giga Gigaom, Gigaom, Gigaom has uh, has gone belly up. This is news to me. Um, so, what did Gigaom do, and why have they gone under, and what's the significance of this to you? Uh, why does it matter to you? 
Well, um, it, it, so this sort of broke in the news. I know we're we're timeless here in podcast world, but um, within the last 24 hours of us recording this, it, it the news broke, and the announcement was that the finances just didn't work, and so they were going to need to shut down operations. So Gigome was a well-known and well-respected um, source of both tech journalism, and they had an analyst wing as well. And it was um, so. It's a it's a pretty sad day. Some of the the really known names in tech journalism, um, and s- who've done some more of the evocative writing, are are out on the open market. So, what that says about us in terms of an industry, what it says about tech journalism at this stage, um, it, are there only the do only the big analysts firms survive, et cetera. Um, they they sort of served, I think, as a beacon for a lot of us in the community. Uh, they felt accessible. Um, if you have the the marketing spectrum that runs from the the suit to the hoodie, uh, they set more nicely on the the hoodie side, I think, and had a lot of street credibility for a lot of us. So uh, um, I think that's a it, it's a loss to the community uh, and fully recognizing that it's a business. Mm. Um, I know we were talking again offline that in the end you have to, um, what does that say? What does that say about our industry that a lot of us support it from the community angle, but the the finances weren't there in place? What does that mean for the next round? I I sort of feel like this is not not the end of what we'll see in terms of changes Mm. within tech journalism and even the analyst structure. So this could be a portent of... Things to come, not to be so dim and gloomy about it, but it could be. I mean, you tell me because I don't really follow those things. Where were they on the food chain? Oh, a small player like mid mid tier or up there with the big guys? I, I think in terms of the the press and and the tech journalism, definitely one of the big players, one of the the known voices in the industry. In terms of analysts, probably you know we've got forcing. Forrester and Gartner tend to be the the ones everybody jumps to mind, mm. and then there's everybody else, you know. So uh, by virtue of how that that the analyst world is stratified, I think there are sort of the big firms, and then everybody else. But um, and again, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I think things uh, empires fall so that new ones rise. Mm. But uh, I think it does signal a bit of a sea change, and it certainly indicates there are some incredibly talented people. Um, who I'm excited to find out where they're going to go next and what they'll do next. So come to Amy if you're looking for a job, is what she's saying. <laughs> I get you covered. I'm just, I'm just here recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say two things about that, which is, you know, you talked about IDC and Gartner and stuff, and in my previous role in the competition team, I would see their reports, which very often are private. Uh, you cannot share them. Because we used to have this constant debate of, oh, we've got this intel from Gartner and EDC that shows that VMware is the dog's, uh, I'm trying to be nice here, dog's private parts. And uh, can we not make this public? And they'd be like, well, we can't because the terms and conditions of this content is blah, 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 blah. Which kind of suggests their model is still a little bit of a, a paywall to some degree, that there's some content that's publicly accessible but as analysts, they get approached by companies like VMware saying, we want you to do this, that, and the other. And of course, the whole magic quadrant thing, which to be honest with you, occasionally makes me want to barf because I really I really haven't very little respect for that kind of stuff. It seems quite 
trivial. But people love it. You know, people love it when they're in the magic quadrant. You know, and then when they're not in the magic quadrant, it's like no, it doesn't really matter anyway. It's a little bollocks. You know, so. It's hard to get context. I mean, you're you're in some ways talking about what we're going to be talking about overall. Of mm. A lot of this is how do we as human beings give things context? How do we put them, how do we decide what's cool and what's not cool? You know, mm. it, it, it harkens back to my early days of programming. Like, you, you got to figure out for you what's cool and what's not, not cool. And it, we're still, we're still ra- uh, wrestling with it as adults, right? And, mm. and I know what works and doesn't work is part of that as well, but... I think we all know there is something to, um, I don't know, how do we all decide? How do we as a collective decide and make these choices? Which I know gets a little esoteric, but mm. um, these people are, these are bellwethers for us. We've selected some folks who maybe, like the folks at Ohm, uh, Giga Ohm, who were um, wonderfully articulate. So uh, we've said those folks can help us decide, think, react, create mm. a fa- framework, you know, so that we can spitball our own feelings, thoughts, etc. We can prove and disprove it. Like you said, magic quadrant, love or hate. Um, it gives you a discussion point, which is mm. easier than a blank wall. The other thing I was thinking about is I've I've occasionally had contact through when I was a I say I was a tech journalist, but I was really just an interloper. You know that that time I was with Tech Target and I was writing copy for them. It was like a little bit of an insight into that world. But of course, you only get an insight into their world, which mm-hmm. is the whole <laughs> industry. But uh, after leaving there, I've had contact with people who have been in the Czech journalism phase for many years, who were around when it was magazines and mm-hmm. product reviews were done by people who actually use the product. But what, what comes back from them a lot of times is, and I don't want to name any names here, but a lot of, oh, the money isn't there like it used to be. And now when I write any number of words, it's like, it's a pittance. I don't know how I'm making my ends meet. In fairness, a lot of those people are, without being rude, at the twilight of their careers. You know, it's sort of, you know, they've probably paid off their mortgages and their kids are through college and probably where they are in their career is they're doing something because they love it rather than because they're, this is going to thrust my career into the next level. And I'm not dis- dissing that because, you know, what that will be me at some point, and I'm, I have no problem with that. You know, there will be a point where I will want to get out of the saddle of, you know, being in the white heat of things. But it, it does sort of indicate to me that the nature of journalism and the nature of those magazines is that the reason they're not being paid the same per word is that there's less money flowing around. As it's yeah. all gone online, advertising revenue streams have become harder to reach, harder to find, more fragmented. It is harder for a business like Giga Home to make that kind of money. No, it's so interesting that we all live in this world where, frankly, we're the infrastructure behind uh, the bits and bytes that fly around, mm. um, and we devalue. There is something so human about devaluing the digital word versus the written word. We did it. You know, I, again, I, I came from book publishing. I had a ten-year career in book publishing before I came over um, and, and watched the the digital battle then, because Amazon was just sort of rising as a re, uh, a retail entity. Um, before they came to, uh, you know, commodify what they what they had that extra storage and capacity and uh, turn it into a business as well. You could see it coming ten years ago. Um, it's uh, it's just interesting. We we, in spite of ourselves, we're talking about print magazine and we dismiss dismiss. But people are still willing to pay more, pay more for a printed book than they are for a digital copy, even though the author took the equal amount of time, no matter what the form factor is that came out. 
Mm. And and that because I am so tied to that business model, uh, you know, and and cut my teeth on it in my early career, um, I have a lot of respect for the value of words and what that takes. And partially because advertising is uh, a lot more um, measurable in the digital world than advertisers that may have been willing to pay a premium for something that was a little bit, again, throw it against the wall and who knows how it works. Who knows how well a billboard performs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in a a world where you can measure absolutely every action that somebody takes, you can heat map, you can look at websites with amazing granularity. Um, They said this is what the real value is. And then there's been a steady chase down the rat hole as it's been devalued. Not to do too long on this because we have got other questions. I think it's kind of similar to what's happened to print media in the press, newspapers mm-hmm. that have all gone online. Some of those newspapers, like in the UK, the Times and the Telegraph, have gone behind a paywall. Other newspapers, like The Guardian, have sought to remain completely free, get themselves over in the US, so you now have Guardian US, and kind of champion sort of true investigative journalism of the kind of Washington Post, Bernstein and Woodward variety, but it's that's expensive to do. It's expensive to do investigative journalism where you may not make any money. And I guess the same is true of tech journalism. There is stuff that's very cheap to do and stuff that's more expensive to do. And maybe we'll find things going behind a paywall and maybe we'll get the cheaper stuff that's easy to execute on rather than the quality stuff, which actually takes more time and more resources, you know. Well, and I think it ties in 100% to our conversation in that um, if we don't, as a community, fund what we consider to be more neutral um, and non-vendor-led discussion, be it analyst or the journalist side, um, then it leaves it to the blogger community, and then you have a choice between are you paid by, you know, by someone, are you paid as a day job, Mm -hmm. and then how does that impact your ability to remain above that fray and not be swayed by various things um, as you write. So it, it, it really does lead us into what will this look like for our blog community, for us as social creatures, for us as wanting to document and share going forward. If that is a, a citizen journalism is free, um, do we actually get that same level of uh, authenticity and abstraction that... In, in theory, trained journalists are supposed to be able to rise above. I so. think I think one way to wrap up this part of the conversation is to do my impression of Bob Gerloff and go, give us the money! <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting the content unless you give us the I don't know why I'm doing a Scottish accent. <laughs> so you anyway. Think, so, so you think the bloggers should get paid? Do you think it will be a rise of citizen no, journalists? No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I make a little bit of money off advertising. And mm-hmm. I stopped doing the Vendor Wag podcast because I felt I couldn't be seem to be promoting another company's products while I'm in the pay of another company. You know, like yep. VMware would go, well, why do you spend more time promoting somebody you, you don't work for? If I became independent, I would bring it back right away. So mm-hmm. I've looked at things that I felt were a conflict of interest and where they were there, I've took them off. Uh, yep. s- similarly, I used to have Nutanix on my webpage. And of course, mm-hmm. I'm with Evil Rail. And I felt uncomfortable using my personal brand to promote to to promote another company's products which I don't know that we compete directly with Nutanix but a lot of people will see to see that and I felt there's a conflict of interest in me writing evil rail evil rail and hey Nutanix in the corner so I guess a lot of it is down to your your own sense of ethics but I've never I've never the idea of being paid to blog when I've been asked to do it I've said no I think it's different if you work as a journalist uh, like I was when I was at Target, but then I would get a fee from 
the magazine. I didn't get a fee yep. from a, a vendor. But anyway, so I, I want to get to my question. That thing, the gig, gig at home, was me trying to give uh, Amy a chance to get a word in edgeways. And now it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> social and media. Thank you and good night. And thank you and good night. Ah, did you blink there? Aiming has suddenly changed. <laughs> what happened? What happened? It's like a pen and teller magic trick. Well, I'm sorry to say that what happened during the recording earlier is that we ran out of space on our wax cylinder, and I didn't have a spare wax cylinder ready for the next part of the recording. So we actually actually had to reschedule this thing. In fact, Amy had to invite herself to my own podcast, which is sort of doubly, <laughs> doubly humiliating. So I'd like <laughs> you to pretend that through the wonders of um, continuity, of which you know the BBC would be proud, that this hasn't happened, and we've just moved seamlessly to the next question. You know, this is how polished this show is. So the next question is, and I'm going to try not to rant here, is social media scepticism. It used to be Twitter and blogging and Facebook and lots of other things were cool and trendy, but has the bubble burst, has the kind of, are we becoming a bit jaded about the whole community social media thing? Amy. So, great question. I, um, I intentionally took social media out of my title a couple of years ago. And uh, have stated that social media is dead at a certain point. Because I think the concept of it, and we've talked about this on Geek Whispers a little bit, is you wouldn't have a fax department. You wouldn't have an <laughs> send an email department, right? So I, I understand the concept of why you need a social media marketing practice within an organization. That tends to be um, a platform expert, somebody who understands the tools and can get metrics out of it. But in terms of guiding people um, uh, how to use these new channels, I think that we have we have evolved. So uh, no, there isn't there isn't this mass excitement. You know, do you remember Ello? Like we have these moments where things burst on the scene and it's going to be the next big thing. In the end. Long story to not rant too much myself. They're all communications channels. So they are communications channels as smoke signals and carrier pigeons and fax transmissions and Morse code and everything else. As human beings, we try to connect with one another. So I think my job is far less about um, this marketing tool and far more about, I joke that I'm like Counselor Troy from uh, Star Trek. Like it's far more about... Uh, being an empath. It's far more about um, being empathetic, about listening, about uh, helping other people find their voice, um, which starts to make sense of the fact that I spent 10 years in trade book publishing, mm. right? So you, as far as you try to run into the next level of your career, you find that you are, you are who you are, and it just expresses itself. Mm. I like the idea of how we've evolved. Um, what I've noticed on social media is some people are still in that process of evolving, <laughs> and they haven't quite got past the knuckles dragging across the floor stage in, <laughs> in evolution. Some of the things that people post online, and I don't mean necessarily... Twitter, but Facebook is, you know, I've occasionally seen stuff from my own community, and I mean a real community, like where I live, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, just friends and things, and thinking like, what are you thinking, you know? Well, 
again, like you said, communities communities have characters, and and so everybody sort of figures out what that is for them. Mm. And I know I hear a lot of bit about you know, oh, Facebook is dead. I'm leaving Facebook, etc. But for me, or there's a strict divide line between personal and professional. So mm. professional is often people say that's Twitter and LinkedIn, and Facebook is personal. I started there too, but for for me personally. A lot of what I do is about developing relationships, mm. and it is a privilege for me to be engaged with people on Facebook that I actually work with as well, in some broad sense, because yeah. I'm watching their kids grow up, I'm watching, you know, it, it, so it, it is it is a more personal medium, but there's something I personally really enjoy about that. I completely respect anybody who is, is not at that place, mm. and it definitely takes some wise muting, editing, um, ignoring outbursts. That's not your your flavor. Mm. Your political arguments are for everyone. Um, stupid posts are for everyone. Uh, but you you find your community. You know you can you can avoid a new conversation just like you can walk off at a cocktail party if somebody's too much. That's an interesting analogy to put it. I mean, when when I faced that Rubicon of where does work and private finish, I once said to somebody, "What's so horrible about the people that you work with that you wouldn't want to be their friends?" But I must admit, I don't have all my work colleagues on my Facebook because some of them are horrible and I don't want anything to do with them. (laughs) So there tends to be the people that I have on my Facebook are a combination of people who are friends and family who I've known outside of work and then people I've seemed to have clicked with beyond a kind of working thing. And I, I must admit, I have tried on Facebook not to post anything about work. I religiously do not post... I've got this latest blog or whatever. Um, I try and keep that personal, what I put out. I know other people don't do that. People post about their blogs. Fine if they do that. But I'm like, you know, I'm engaging with you on a level which has got nothing to do with work, you know, as opposed to a work thing. So I have tried to do it. Somebody was a discussion about this, which I think maybe you were on, on Facebook amongst our peer group about should you have two accounts. And I tried that. And I couldn't get the right people to follow the right bloody accounts. Mm-hmm. So all my friends would be f- trying to follow the work one and all my work people would be trying to follow the, 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 the non-one. I was like, oh, sod this. I'll just, I'll just, uh, my rule is, is if I've met you and I liked you and I'd like to be your friend, be my friend, then I will say yes. But if you're some guy I met six months ago in a, in a, in a V-mug and we maybe had one drink, I'm like, really? We're friends? Friends? And, and I think those—I think those are the kinds of standards we need to. And everybody chooses their own course. And mm. the same way, of there are people that you have a Twitter conversation that you would never text. So there are just levels of privacy, and mm. we use our tools for for different things. And mm. and I think that's okay. I I think it's interesting that we often people people want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. To use that analogy, that you hear a lot of oh, social media is it's horrible or it's not, you just have a place in a professional setting. I, I think it's just more granular than that. And, and to be honest, the evolution I speak of is we've had these tools for a while now. I'd like to think we're getting a bit better at it. At the very least, we're creating cultural norms around it. Mm. Um, so I, I think that we will see how we use it evolve. Mm. Some will just drop off and die. Um, but we will also, it's changed forever, I think. Maybe you've always had this, but... You know, you're you're across the pond from me. I'm over here. If we were friends in another lifetime, this would be letter writing. This would be 
you know, very rare occasional phone call. This would be uh, maybe seeing each other in person at, at certain events. So it, it has, for, and again, for me, I like the richness of me and sort of that I can be this girl from backwater North Carolina who, you know, grew up to have friends, literal friends around the world and who has a job that allows me to engage all of these people professionally and the privilege, like I said, of getting to know some folks um, better at, at that more personal level. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an advocate. I'm, I'm a champion of it. And I understand everybody's got to let it in their life at the right level. Um, professionally speaking, I think companies are, of course, companies are hand-handed. Um, they are going to do it wrong. They're going to, marketers ruin everything. I, I fully admit it. They see a blank canvas, they're like graffiti artists. They cannot see a blank wall and not put an ad on it. And and I think mar social reporters are the same way. They want to, you're going to hear people talk about leveraging advocates. They want to they want to turn people's influence into an advocate for them. There's endless talk about how you move people up that chain to become all the way to a brand defender. And, and, it, human human interaction is still very complicated for marketing. So because it's very hard to measure, even though it's the it is the thing that is most important at point of purchase. So we can talk about the technology, and it needs to be there for sure. But that point of purchase moment where you choose Apple versus Android, that is there is something more there. That is marketing. That's emotion. So and I will I will defend that to my dying day. In brain. <laughs> so here's a question then, and I, I can relate it to something which is directly to me, which is occasionally I feel sometimes those of us who are in social media, even though you're not supposed to have that in your job title anymore, um, they feel a little bit ambivalent about the relationship between uh, what work demands of them and what they do. And uh, one of my particular challenges um, is because I have a, a following on Twitter and a following on the blog and whatnot, and I, I know how Twitter works, I, I can type in 140 characters. Occasionally I've been identified as being the person who should mastermind, a bit like Dr. Evil, a social media strategy. Yeah. And, I, and I, my response to this, and I don't know how you feel about it, is I can't do that because... I'm not professionally trained to do that kind of job. And then people say to me, but, but, but you've got loads of Twitter followers and you've got loads of people who follow you on LinkedIn. I go, yeah, anyone can set up a Twitter account. Anyone can create a LinkedIn account and post something. That doesn't make you an expert on using these tools in a way that promotes a business to the wider world. I mean, I, I kind of say to these people, if you open up a Twitter account and type something in, you're as expert as me about social media strategy. Um, but am I wrong to think that way, or am I am I just I, trying I, to stop it and make it somebody else's problem? <laughs> I, I actually I think you're uh, equal parts, right? Um, if you if you have a knife and a chopping block, you aren't necessarily a chef. A chef, you have the potential. You can create food, but you aren't necessarily a chef. And, and so some of it is, I think, the way people think. Some of the most talented people who are interested and really understand this medium, you know, this form of human marketing, are you don't necessarily know their names. 
I watch they are behind the scenes people, a scenes people. They are they are introverted. They are not interested in making their own voice. They are sometimes they will sublimate their own voice, so to speak, to be the voice of a corporate channel. So you'll never actually know the face associated with it. Um, so the the characteristics don't necessarily align. There are other folks I know who who do the strategy part, who have their own um, technical practice or practice of some sort. So I think that you get all all points on the spectrum. But I don't I don't disagree with you. I think there is I I have a passion for watching how you move the levers and have something all work together. That is that's my set of raw materials. That's that sounds very I, Machiavellian. Move those it levers. Is, Little it, it puppet master. Tweet, tweet with one eye open. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ultimate. Where Machiavelli and Metallica meet. Mm. Um, so it is... I, I actually completely agree with you. It doesn't mean that that's not possible. That somebody might go, you're right. I do want to do this. Or they have great feedback about how community works. Because I would consider you an expert on your community. So if I had a strategy, a, a wise woman would come ask you, does this, does it pass the smell test, right? Does this, will this play in your community or will your community reject this? Mm. Because if I'm not in your community, but I'm trying to do something with your community, that just makes sense. So I think that we often get that divide mm. where in organizations, of course, my favorite topic, the org chart, if you silo either social media or marketing off from engineering and sales, and you never, never the twain shall meet. You miss the opportunity for people like yourself who have many skills and who, in a short meeting, could reflect on a strategy that was presented to you. That's different than asking you to do your technical everyday job and develop the strategy at the same time. That just might not be your passion. Sure. I, when you said uh, words from a wise woman, it made me think of a scene from uh, Blackadder. Do you know Blackadder at all? I don't. <laughs> When he goes looking for the wise woman, and uh, he, he says, "Are you?" He says to the woman, "Are you wise?" And she says, first, I be a woman." <laughs> and he goes, "Yes." <laughs> and second, I be wise, and he's like, "Right, okay." So you be the wise woman, then. So, but so it just couldn't. I couldn't get out of my head. I guess I. I think probably my attitude to it is I'm not a social media expert. Uh, I created some content that people were interested in and then I made it available and from that people follow you so for me you have to have the content or something to say to say to go on Twitter and say hey hello I've got this view I mean sometimes it is banter and chit chat and discussing things or somebody asks you a question but if you don't have the content what is it that you are tweeting about hey this product's really good you should check out our video no, I I agree. So when I do a when I do a little drawing of it, because I whiteboard this out fairly often of what is influence marketing, because people are like that is the most made up, ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, well, but I can whiteboard it. So let's talk. It is it, for me. It's people, platforms, and content. So exactly to your point, you've got the people, and we've had that discussion. Those are the practitioners out there in the world. Um, sometimes they can be within your own company. My preference is to work with the folks outside the company. Um, assuming that you you do you get more out of other people talking about you than talking about yourself, then you've got the platforms and twofold. So how do you meet people? You can do it in person. You can do it online. 
So that's where social media fits in for me. Under the, it's one part of the platform strategy. The other is events, and then the third piece is content. So there's user-generated content. There's the block and tackle specs kind of feeds and speeds necessary content, and the third kind of magical content is when you can get any one of those things to be a social object. So some things are just cooler, more shareable, more. I don't know. They've just got that pop, and you don't know what it will be. And as a content creator, I'm sure you've had that experience of you can write ten blogs, and the eleventh one is just it blows up. And it, it's hard to say. It's writers write multiple novels, chapters, books, mm. phrases, and we pull quotes out. We are as humans can only absorb so much. Some things resonate with us. Mm. So those those magical pieces of content that really work. Become social objects that we pass around. Yeah, I guess what it's all about what floats your boat. I enjoy making content that I hope people find useful, mm-hmm. uh, and then I want people to to find it. So, uh, and the Twitter thing, I wasn't on Twitter for a while until I think I blogged about those nauseating kind of quite clearly written by PR people blog posts <laughs> on on Microsoft's website, and there are others. You know the kind of Hey, I'm Joe, and my job is senior product, blah, blah, blah. And I was walking across the lake the other day, walking on water. I started to think about our technology and how wonderful it is. And I'm like, oh, please, just, like, give it a rest. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, but, like, it, it quite clearly is, like, empty. And I said, if you are going to write and be aligned to a vendor, what you write should be contentious or useful or interesting. It shouldn't be this kind of vacuous marketing stuff. But I, here's my other question then, which is, and I, I've got a call coming up or a, a chinwag coming up with um, Craig Waters, who you might know from the from the Melbourne BMOC, and he, I think he now works at Pure Storage. We're both kind of people who've moved over to vendors relatively recent, so we're both like, hmm, this isn't this, this is interesting. This is how I wasn't expecting it to be. But I, I've often wondered, do we, if we're not careful, end up like coming across as a bit of a self help group? That social media people are like, nobody gets us. We have to all get together and have a group hug. You know, those big old evil corporate marketing people. They don't understand social media. But my friend Craig does, and I get I get together with him every couple of weeks and go, nobody understands us. Have we is that is that actually how it's happening? Or are we are, are they getting are they them getting us? Or are we is it still that kind of divide between conventional marketing and lead gen and blah 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 and this other thing which is let's face it a bit fluffy and a bit you know let's have a big hug you know social media stuff well again i could have i get i chose influence marketing as my title but i could have chose chosen you know head empath how can you imagine how well that would have gone at the to the for board approval um it it is a community group hug at a certain point. I actually really believe in it because I think how you feel about something, if you check, check my Myers-Briggs, I think how you feel about something is incredibly important. Mm. But um, I, I think I think in some ways we need an enemy, and that's okay too. You need uh, every classic tale. You need a little <laughs> bit of a villain. And, <laughs> uh, exactly. And, and to be honest, and and... Over the years, hearing various stories, golly, it, it, people offer themselves up. That, that one's a pretty easy one, right? If you have on the spectrum. And I, I've 
recently developed a, a marketing spectrum where on one side you've got um, the suits and on the other side you've got the hoodies. <laughs> and so the marketing BS spectrum runs from suit to hoodie. And on the suit side, um, the hoodies perceive their marketing as being complete BS, right? Light, fluffy, written by a flack. Um, not of technical substance. Mm. And then you've got, you shift the slaughter bar all the way down to where it appeals maybe to a hoodie where it's super technical and the suits have fallen asleep and they think this is boring and doesn't grasp the, the big picture of the business. Mm. So I think every, I call to every marketeer to feel, figure out where you are on that slaughter bar because honestly some content, those are extremes, those are stereotypes, but Figure out where your marketing is on that slider bar. And I think that's true for us as bloggers within the community as well, people within the community. Um, your your stuff is going to sit somewhere in this spectrum. Somebody is not going to like it. So is it possible to be both a, a suit and a hoodie at the same time? I, I think we have seen an evolution in the evangelist community, people who carry that title, sometimes CTO. Uh, they are wearing a suit jacket, but they absolutely have a t-shirt or a hoodie underneath there. Or they're wearing an address hoodie. You know, we've got a, a, a few names just pop right in my head. And I, so I think that I think there, is a, there is a divide in terms of how people process information, how they make judgments, what they want. There absolutely is a sense of other, but in some ways that is part of community identity. If a community, a community is somewhat born of both its own principles and what it's not, because you have to have an outside edge. Okay. So I think you are, I think you're right. I think there are absolutely plenty of, of people who don't understand. John, John Troyer talks about it as the coral reef. And uh, Brenda just recently referred to him as a reef guard, which I love. So instead of a lifeguard, the idea is that the three of us have jobs that are similar ironically that we've moved all over the place mm. to protect and defend that concept of community to say that if even though it's not measurable in a traditional way even though it doesn't look like traditional legion demand gen marketing or pr even though you can't control the message it's incredibly valuable mm. i like the idea that we've drifted into the area of haute couture fashion and bringing up ideas of like the hoodie suit or the suit hoodie oh. I'm going, it, to, I'm going to get myself. I'm, I'm going to get myself down to Savile Row and get myself a pinstriped hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen those. They do not look like. A... <laughs> so I mean, in a way, actually, this what you just said a moment ago segues us on to the next question. Can you see what a great presenter I am? The way I just <laughs> easily pick up a thread and move it seamlessly. <laughs> if only I didn't draw everybody's attention to it when I did it, it would actually be quite good. <laughs> but um, you mentioned moving around. And you move from being at Cisco uh, to uh, Solidfire. Uh, what what made you move? What do you think of Solidfire? Um, was it technology that attracted you? They had some cool bits, or was it more the kind of uh, the, the culture and the people there, or, or combination of both? So, tell me about that change in your in your life. No, absolutely. And it's funny this came up on on Twitter just yesterday. Um, it, it's interesting how. I don't ever want people to see, and I hope people will walk away from this, as seeing career moves as acts of aggression. I, I don't necessarily know that my move got seen that way, but I certainly have seen that happen, where people think it's someone sticking a, a flag and saying, I believe in this company over this company, or I believe in this. It is a very personal decision. For me, it was based on the people I would work with and the technology. 
and the opportunity. So there was no way I was going to get um, the the startup on my resume being at Cisco. So if I wanted to try startup culture, if I wanted to try a, a two to three hundred person company, that that was going to require a change. Mm. I came from people. I guess because I came on the scene, sort of fully formed out of uh, to use a methodological <laughs> term. Um, I came from small business before. My first company, there were 15 people. The second, you know, I worked for the parent company, there were 200 max. And, and so I came from small business culture to go to 70,000. A friend of mine called that corporate whiplash. So I was, Cisco was that learning curve for me, what that was like. Um, it made sense to me at a certain point in my career where I felt like, you know, I've buttoned up these certain challenges to make another move and to try something yet again to, to flex the skills in a different environment. Right. So Cisco's, Cisco's challenge, and again, very openly, was how do you humanize a really large company? Again, empathy being this word overall. Um, so that's, that's one challenge versus Solifar's challenge is how do you take an incredibly human company and make them seem larger than life? Mm. So opposite challenges, and that's interesting. Obviously, the technology played a key component there. I'm, uh, I'm not going to work for somebody whose technology I don't believe in. Uh, so those, those were really, that's my, my three criteria. It had to be a new challenge. It had to be people that I wanted to work with every day. And it had to be a technology I was excited about and could put my name behind and with. It's interesting that you said that it has to be a technology you believe in. That doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't necessarily mean it has to be perfect. Or suitable in all cases uh, it's just something that you feel personally aligned to I had a couple of job offers before I joined VMware which I didn't take because although the technology was good I didn't feel any passion for it and I thought if I don't feel any passion for it that's going to come over in everything I do that I would just be going through the motions and life is kind of too short to go through the motions you have to you have to have some sort of drive um, so that that that's what kind of put me off because you've got to connect to it, and even if the te the technology could be rubbish, actually, and only relevant to one one percent of the population. But if you really like it, then then that's a good thing because that that enthusiasm will come through in your uh, demeanor with people. I think I agree, and 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 the flip side of that, I would also I. I always counsel people, don't go negative. At, at the same time, I love how you put that. The technology does not have to be perfect. It does not have to solve every problem. It, you know, it does not have to be the year of VDI. It can, it can, uh, there are, there are so many, technology is exciting because it's ever-changing, because there are a million customers, because there are a million problems to be solved. And be positive, be passionate, like you said, even if it's 1% solution for one's particular base. But I think it doesn't mean that your 1% means that you have to hate on the 99% who have different problems and need different technology. So when I see people transition and, and just, you know, either bash the company they were at before, um, I, I'm very conscientious about that. I, I And that's why sort of leading in this off, I, I dislike when people see moves as some slap one way or the other. You know, I had a great run at Cisco. I have colleagues I still talk to every day. Um, I made a lot of friends there. It was uh, a wonderful experience. So my change is in no way a reflection of some some odd 
political comment on one thing versus the other. It's about uh, having a certain degree of professionalism, isn't it? And also, I think I've always taken the attitude that, yeah, maybe your career is endlessly going up and up, um, but um, don't burn any bridges because you never know what you might find if your career doesn't go on and on up and up. Um, well, you know, so, I will say, you know. one caveat for that, though, was something a friend taught me, and I just love this, of, of it was in real estate. And she said she there was this realtor who was just a little bit shady. And so she would go in and compete honestly, and this person just somehow snuck in there every time. Mm. And, uh, and she said the woman actually taught her, never burn bridges, but by God, if you do, take a gas can. <laughs> and so that's my one cat. That has stuck with me. I just love that. I think it's sometimes if you're going to do it, do not go by half measure. If it is time for whatever reason, and sometimes there's a rare, but sometimes there is a use case. Maybe someone is truly shady or it just is not, you know, if you're going to cut ties, don't do it silently or without purpose. Mm. Do it with a gas can and just accept the consequences. <laughs> and upon that note, a bit of career advice. If you ever find yourself not really very happy at work, you know, get yourself some, uh, I don't know, volatile liquid and uh, take a few people out. You know, I mean, why not? You know? I have this, it's such, my vision of that, I'm sure everybody's as different as I always see like a, a bridge and some leafy kind of beautiful environment and somebody just standing there, you know. Fuming with a uh, holding a gas. I got, well, I, I'm kind of imagining a flamethrower, and you know, it's your last day at work. Everybody's left the building. It's just like, <laughs> so long. You know. I think actually sometimes maybe there's an element of a kind of revenge is um, a dish served cold, or revenge. Not so much revenge, but sweet ironies. I in the '90s, I was with a company which I don't feel really treated staff very well, won't mention its name. And uh, I was made redundant by them in 2001. And uh, I went contracting. And uh, you know what it's like, the company that got rid of you, you know, three months later, you're contracting for them. So I'm doing some yep. contract work for them. Um, but about seven, 18 months later, they went belly up. They went into administration. And I was the last guy out of their building before the creditors came in and locked, put the padlocks on. And I was quite annoyed about being, you know, being made redundant because you're surplus to requirements. But when they put the padlocks on, I was like, and I saw you guys out. I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still functioning. You're not here. Um, I mean, not that because the, you know, like the company collapsed because I wasn't the great man. Life it wasn't there. But it was a kind of like a, a kind of bit of sweet irony that I was the person, you know, to get in the lift and you know press close as they put the padlocks on. I thought mm, that close is a nice chapter for me I'll uh, I'll remember that you know so there is the element of you know never burn your bridges because you never know who you might meet on the way on the way down when you're back with the little people uh, <laughs> as Barbara Streisand's one put it but at uh, the same token as well is is people who don't treat you right you know they should they should be aware that you know that that doesn't mean they have carte blanche right to, to behave as they are I sound all bitter and twisted I'm gonna <laughs> no I think it's it just it's back to the people are people in the end we we are not a huge community within technology and it it behooves us all to do the right thing and act professionally yeah, yeah. it really does and we don't you don't have to click and be best friends with everybody but it's pretty awesome to, to tie it all together that there are these tools that allow you to connect at different levels with different people mm. so it's a 
all the things we learned in grade school play themselves out one more time. It's uh, you get it a million chances to get it right. Yeah, and like the last thing I would like to say is I think you hit the nail on the head about um, the people you, you meet. I mean, I've met so many people across the planet, partly through a lot through VMUG because VMUG took me to places to to present the places, and some of it was from VM Worlds, but a lot of it has been online. Um, and that's that's a really I've got really good friends now all over the place, which wouldn't have been possible even a very short time ago through this community. And I I kind of hope I, and maybe you've heard me say this before. When we're all old and grey, uh, we'll all end up in a big kind of care home together, <laughs> shuffling around with our Zimmer frames, and uh, I'll be talking about Evil Rail or whatever it is. So, you know, <laughs> Version 1 wasn't any good, but version 2, eh, you know. <laughs> and Scott Lowell will be down in the corner going, oh, there goes that Mike Larry, he never shuts up, you know. So uh, <laughs> I have a feeling that maybe, hopefully, that these community uh, bonds that you make are ones that are will go beyond our times in, you know, career or beyond our time in even a particular sector, but you, you never know. But, any, it's been a joy and a, a pleasure chatting to you. I really want to thank you for being on the show. I want to fess up and, and thank the fact that Amy has been so understanding. I had so many technical problems. Oh, you would not believe it. And then dates and calendars. Every, I look so unprofessional. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a curse to podcasts. Well, Don't no, it's, tell not, it's not you, it's <laughs> me. You know, I'm usually Mr. Slick, you know. So uh, last week I was doing, um, a vendor was presenting to me. And he said to me, you're a great straight man with the questions that you're giving me just at the right time. And I was like, yeah, I've had a bit of practice doing this. But you wouldn't have thought it this week because it was being a bit of a horror show. My only uh, uh, saving grace is my, my Mac died uh, a couple of days ago, a week ago, and I've been on a, a loaner laptop. So I've been sort of tussling with that a little bit. But it really, it really was my fault. So I'm sorry, Amy, that you, you haven't seen the normal slick operation that the chinwag is you know, known for. Well, I, I feel like it's this wonderful full circle. I love I love the full circleness of it. Like you said, we started this off and saying I entered the community and, and you were you were in in the bar of which <laughs> I, I attended many a an in person event and that was the first one. So uh, it all seems it all seems appropriate. Cool. Well thank you very much and uh, tune in for the next uh, very well put together show without continuity problems. <laughs> Thanks a lot for uh, speaking, Amy. Thank you.